0: So I'm going to dive right in today. We're going to study the book of Colossians and let's just read uh, chapter 2 verses 6 through 15. So if you got your Bible with you, Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 through 15, we'll read that and then we'll kind of break it apart. And if you don't have a Bible, it'd be our pleasure to give you one. You can make your way out those doors after the service and at the welcome desk there, we've got Bibles. We just love to put God's Word in your hand as something that we just believe everybody is, would be blessed to have. So All right, let's look together. Chapter 2, verse 6 through verse 15 says this. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. "...for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Lord, your word is true, and your word is right. And so we pray as we come to examine it today that we would uh, come in humility and in submission to that word knowing that all that it offers us is good and right and true, that we wouldn't sit in authority or judgment over it, but we would allow it to do that to us. And so we pray that you give us humble hearts, tender before you. We pray that you would teach and instruct us, and we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Holy Spirit, that you would take this living and active word now and let it be applied into our lives. Where we are in need of conviction, would you bring that And may your kindness lead us to repentance where we are in need of encouragement. Would you bring that where my brothers and sisters are feeling the heavy load of life today? I pray that you would bring a fresh word of mercy and grace to them to sustain and to strengthen, to cause them to persevere in the faith, that they might persevere in the faith, Lord Jesus. This is my prayer for my church family. Would you show us how to discern now truth from falsehood. Show us how. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this text... You notice right off the bat that verses 6 and 7, they kind of set our theme for us. And they say this again, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, in other words, as you welcomed him into your life, as you believed the claims that Epaphras, who was the one that brought the gospel to to the Colossians, as you believed what Epaphras told you about Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection, as you received that now... And that's true of you. It says, so walk in him. And I want you to key in on that phrase because that idea in verse six, so walk in him, is now gonna become the theme of the entire middle section of Colossians. Up to this point, we've really been getting an introduction in the book to the circumstances going on in the church at Colossae. And we've been seeing Paul uh, give us just a beautiful explanation of the supremacy of Jesus and how wonderful he is, how unrivaled he is in his worth, in his merit, in his work. All of that essentially has been a building up now to this middle section of the book, which is essentially going to be about this idea. As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. In other words, if you have come into Christ and he has come into you, there is a way that you should live. There is a way that you should walk, yes? And he's saying, now I'm going to unpack that for you. I'm going to tell you many things about how someone who has come into Christ Jesus, how they walk. I'm going to tell you what that looks like. And he says, so you might be rooted and built up and established in the faith. Now, those terms should feel like an echo of what we saw last week, if you were with us, in Colossians one twenty-eight, when it said, him we proclaim... Warning everyone and teaching everyone. So two kind of capacities or facets of the way we disciple people. Right, we, we warn against falsehood and we instruct in the truth. So warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone. Does anyone remember the phrase from last week? Mature in Christ, right? Mature in Christ. So this now in chapter 2 verse 6 is echoing that same idea. The goal is not just that you would be saved from eternal damnation and separation from God. The goal is that you would be presented to God in Christ, mature. That you would know him and walk in that every area of life would be touched by what he says and who he is. That the way I think about my finances, the way I think about my relationships, the way I think about my job, the way I think about how I raise my kids, every area of life completely subsumed by the person of Jesus Christ. That's the goal of Paul. That's what he's after. And so it's what we're, what we're after. And so he's going to make some arguments today about how that takes place. So what you're gonna see then, if that's what verse six and verse seven are telling us about how this whole middle section of the book is gonna look, that we're gonna get some just practical instruction about what does it look like to walk in him, Right? Then he's going to go on in verses 8 through 15 to tell us now a specific way that he wants us to learn to walk in him. So look at verse 8 again. Now verse 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. So in other words, the first thing Paul's gonna attack when he says, I want you to learn to walk in him, to come to maturity in him, the first thing Paul's gonna attack is false ideas that distract us or take us away from the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. So he's first gonna address what he calls philosophies that are earthly, right, uh, that are sort of undergirded by what he calls uh, earthly spirits, right? The idea that there are uh, real dark spiritual influences whose primary goal in the world is to cause us and others to not see Jesus for who he truly is, to, 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 to move towards some other thing rather than him. And that's the first thing he wants to address. He wants to say, okay, I don't want you to be deceived. You remember in verse four, just a couple of verses before this, he actually talked about the same idea when he says, I don't want you to be deluded by false ideas. And so today, what we're going to talk about, and and next week as well, he is going to dwell on this idea of don't be misled by false ideas, by worldly philosophies, by things that are not according to Christ. And so this week, what he's going to do is he's going to show us how Christ gives us, what he offers us to enable us to identify what is true and what is false, and how he makes us able to actually do this. Because how many of you have ever felt the, the burden or the pressure of going, man, I'm in a difficult circumstance and I'm not sure what a Christian is supposed to do in this scenario? You ever been there before? You just think to yourself, this is hard, and I, I don't know what to do. And I'm a follower of Christ and I want to apply my, I want to apply the truth of my worldview that Christ rules and reigns over everything. And my submission and my love for him, I want to apply that to the circumstance, but I'm, I'm not sure how, if I'm honest. And so Paul's going to give us some instructions today to show us what Jesus gives us to enable us to do that, to become discerning people. And the next week, what we're going to find is he's going to focus more on the other side of that, the philosophies that, that take us away from Jesus. And he's going to elaborate a little bit more on when you look at philosophies uh, that don't submit themselves to Jesus, here's some of the things that you're gonna see are gonna be common denominators of those philosophies and I want you to reject them. That, that's next week. This week is gonna focus more on what Christ offers us to enable us to be discerning. So you with me? Make sense? Okay, fantastic. So that's what we're doing today. He's going to give us four things that Christ has done that enable us to reject false beliefs. And so we're going to, we're going to look at these four things and we're going to ask a couple questions about each of the four. The first is, what claim do they make? So we'll look at the text, we'll unpack it, and then we'll ask, what, what claim is Paul making about what Christ is able to do here? Or what is the claim that Christ is making about what he can do? And then we'll ask the question, well, how does that claim enable us to reject false ideas? Like, how does the fact that Jesus says he can do this enable us then to reject a false concept, a false philosophy when we see it? And then the third thing that we're going to want to do is to say, uh, not just how does that enable us, but I want to compare it to, I think, what is the most prevalent and and readily available false philosophy in our world, which is the philosophy of secularism. And I want to compare if I can, the claim that secularism would make in this same area where Christ makes a claim, and let's just compare the two, and let's try and be fair to secularism uh, and see how it measures up and just see what kind of claims it makes in light of the claims that Christ makes. Uh, Now, when I say secularism, I need to define that just a little bit here. and I, I promise not to get too philosophical, okay? promise. But just... Need to do a little bit of, because this is a broad term and it gets it, it, it is an umbrella term for a lot of different things. So atheism is a secular philosophy. Agnosticism is a secular philosophy. Humanism is a secular philosophy. There are a lot of secular philosophies that are all kind of unique from one another. But what binds them tends to bind them all together is the idea that human beings do not need to believe in God in order to both be satisfied and to be moral that human beings do not need to believe in God in order to be fulfilled or satisfied, and they do not need to believe in God in order to be moral or good or right. Those are kind of the, the overarching things that tend to, to bind together philosophies like humanism, agnosticism, atheism, and we're not going to drill down into the difference of all those things. We're just want to kind of speak generally to the idea that someone who is, and maybe you, uh, embraces a secular philosophy of the world, essentially rejects the notion uh, that that a God who is necessary exists uh, and that he is necessary to the equation for human flourishing and thriving and uh, for human goodness, for morality. So if that's clear as mud, hopefully then we can we can move forward. So Let's talk about the first thing, the first uh, thing we see in the text. We find in verse nine and 10, and it's this. It, it is that Jesus says he has, one thing he has done for us is he has, he has filled us. So look again at verse nine and 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And now get ready for the play on words here because he says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So did you catch the play on words there? He in him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now we've already seen that in Colossians chapter one where we talked about the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh and and Paul spent no short amount of time explaining to us how supreme and unrivaled he is because in fact he is God wrapped in flesh. And so he's repeating that idea in order to make this play on words here where he says, in him, the fullness of deity, the fullness of deity dwells bodily and then those who have received him, in him you have been what church? He says, filled, filled. Now, so the question that comes is, what does he mean when he says, you have been filled in him? Now, your mind might run pretty quickly because it's a common biblical phrase to being filled with the Spirit. We see that term uh, in the New Testament quite a bit, particularly in the book of Acts. We see this idea of being filled with the Spirit. And what that means typically when we see it is that, a special anointing or an empowering of the Spirit would descend upon one of the followers of Jesus in order to enable that servant to be able to fulfill a purpose that God has from that moment. So a special empowerment for a unique work in a specific moment. Uh, Not talking about the indwelling of the Spirit which is present in every believer but the filling of the Spirit that will come at points for a special empowerment to do a special work. So your mind might run to that if you're kind of familiar with that biblical terminology but I want to encourage you that's not what this is talking about. Okay? When he says that you would be filled. He's not talking about a specific empowerment, being filled with the Spirit. He would say filled with the Spirit if he intended that. What he does mean is that Jesus, what, the claim that he's making essentially is that being filled with him is the idea of being completely satisfied at a good meal. Right, that you sit down at a good meal and you partake of it and you eat it. And at the end, when you're done, you say, I'm what? I'm full, right? And some of us say that too late in the game. Right? We're like, uh, I was full five minutes ago, but it was really good. Right? And So I kept eating. But the idea is, is exactly that. The, the, the wordage he's using here that Paul is getting at, he's going, he's making a claim. He says Christ makes a claim to be able to fill you, to be able to completely satisfy you the way you are satisfied at the end of a good meal. And you don't need anything else, right? At the end of a good meal, you don't go, you know what else I want? Some McDonald's. Right, you go, no, I, I, just, I just had filet mignon. I am well taken care of, right, I'm good. I forgot there's some vegans here too. I don't know what, I don't know what. <laughs> Portobello mushroom, you know, like whatever that good thing is, right? I, it was satisfying, satisfying. So you get the idea, yes? He's saying he, he can fill you. So the first claim that Jesus makes is I can satisfy you. I can fill you up so that you want nothing else. Now that should immediately, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, should immediately uh, probably hit us and and cause us to ask the question, am I living like I'm fully satisfied in Jesus? Right. The command here is, is walk in him. You've received him, now walk in him. And the first thing he's gonna say is, I I can satisfy you. The question then that comes to us is, am I living like he is the ultimately satisfying thing? Or am I treating life like I need something else? Like I need a spouse to be satisfied. Or I need kids to be satisfied. Or I need a better job or more in my paycheck. Or, you know, you fill in the blank. Or am I acting as if what Paul says here is absolutely true. He and he alone can satisfy now, that's a claim, right? I can't prove that claim to you. I can only say that I have experienced it to be true. And I have found that when I act as if something else is satisfying, ultimately, I always find it empty. I always find it void of meaning. Every single time, without fail. And every time I return to Jesus and say, no, I'm reminded that you are the only one that satisfied, I find it to be true. Now, I know some people say that's a trick of the mind, right? Or you're predisposed to, to feel that way. And like I said, I can't, I can't prove it to you, but what I can say is come partake of the meal of Jesus and see if I'm wrong, right? I mean, just, it's a little bit of a try me out, right? Is what Jesus is saying. Just try me out because I'm gonna tell you that I satisfy like nothing else can satisfy. Now, then the next question, right, is well, how does that help me reject a false idea? Like how does believing that Jesus fills me, how does believing that help me reject some false idea? Well, you may, your mind may be connecting the dots here, right? And it's, it's relatively simple. I think the reason Paul starts with this is because he's, he's wanting us to see that if you recognize and believe and, and rehearse this belief, right, that Jesus fills you, that he satisfies you, and you press into that, what that's going to do is it's going to cause you to not look to other ideas other than him to satisfy you, Right? You're not going to go looking if you don't want anything. Why do I go to the store to buy groceries? Because my refrigerator's empty. But if my refrigerator's full, do I need to go to the grocery store? No, I'm fully stocked up. I'm good. And that's what Jesus is saying. I have fully stocked the fridge here, folks. You don't need to go to the store and look for something else. You don't need to head down to the fast food restaurant to grab a meal. I've provided everything. It's in the fridge now. Let's start partaking of the meal, right? That's what he's getting at. So that's how it it goes about helping us reject false ideas. And I love this. Um, Every other sort of philosophy of life looks to satisfy us typically with concepts, with ideas, right? And that's particularly true of secularism. You, You have to kind of be satisfied by a set of ideas, uh, but Christianity is not looking to satisfy you with a set of ideas. Christianity is looking to satisfy you with the indwelling presence of God with whom you can have a relationship. It's a big difference to say be satisfied by a set of ideas versus be satisfied by a relationship. Do you, you know what I mean? One, one actually has the possibility of satisfying you and the other, right, is just theoretical, Now let's ask the question, so what does secularism offer as a counterbalance to this? Or what would it offer? If we say Jesus makes a claim to satisfy, then uh, and secularism just as part of its definition says you don't need belief in God in order to find satisfaction or fullness in life, right? That's literally part of the secular humanist society definition of secularism. If it says that, then where does it look for satisfaction? Like where does secularism, if, if belief in God is not necessary, then where should I look in order to get satisfaction? And in secularism, the answer is anywhere you want. You just choose, right? If you want to find it in money, find it in money. If you want to find it in power, find it in power. If you want to find it in intellectual achievement, find it. In, if you want to find it in philanthropy and in helping your neighbor, find it in that, right? I mean, so across the board, there, There are so many options available to you in secularism of where you would look for satisfaction. But let me tell you, the major difference between the place secularism might coach you to look for satisfaction and there where Christianity tells you. And the major difference is this. Christianity offers you satisfaction in Jesus who does not change nor do the effects of his work in our lives change. Therefore, regardless of our circumstances, satisfaction is still available. But by definition, in a secular worldview, my satisfaction has to be placed in something that can be changed. Money can be taken away. Relationship can end. Even my good works, my doing good can be rejected and pushed aside and say, I don't want your help. No, thank you. Right? Any of it can be changed. And so ultimately, it is vulnerable to instability. The satisfaction that secularism looks for is vulnerable, no matter where you look for it, is vulnerable to instability. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's a comparison there. Now let's look at the next thing that Jesus tells us he has done. The second thing in this text he tells us he has done is that he has taken our sinful nature from us by burying us. Look at verse 11 and 12. He has taken our sinful nature from us by burying us. In verse 11, he says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. And I'm going to stop there having been buried with him in baptism. So this may be a a complex metaphor uh, if you're not familiar with it. Let me just kind of break it down for us. Essentially what he's saying is when he says, you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, he's saying it's not a physical circumcision, right, and we're familiar with what that is. He says it's a spiritual circumcision. And what he's getting at is a metaphor for the idea that you have had uh, the sin in you cut out of you, cut away from you in the same way that circumcision cuts away a part of the flesh, physical circumcision does, spiritual circumcision, done without hands, he says, and done by Christ, he says the circumcision of Christ, meaning it's the circumcision that Christ does, he's the the actor of it, is the circumcision of the heart. Moses talked about this in the Old Testament, right, that God desires a circumcised heart, not just a circumcised flesh, Right, So in the Old Testament, circumcision was this emblem of being a part of the people of God. It was, it was symbolic of being Jewish and therefore part of God's people in the Old Testament. And now when we come to the New Testament, we find this, this idea, this concept kind of reinvented or reinvigorated, I should say, with its true purpose and meaning, which is to say that Christ intends to cut away our sin from us so that we might walk with him. And then he goes on to talk about baptism, and he kind of he says, you have been buried with him through baptism, which by the way, is a great reminder of the importance of baptism. He's getting at more than just the symbolism of baptism that we have died with Christ and been raised. He's actually expecting that everyone who has come to faith is baptized and he's honestly baptized pretty quickly upon coming to faith. Because, he says, that activity is an activity wherein we don't just, he actually equates, he says, when that's taking place, that's when that circumcision is taking place because you're being buried in that moment. Now, he's not saying baptism takes away your sin because right at the end of that phrase, and we'll read it at the end of verse 12, he says it's through faith. So he's not diminishing faith as the, as the only thing that saves us, but he is raising the importance of baptism very, very high. And he's saying they they go hand in hand, faith and baptism, they just go right there, hand in hand. So much so that I can say that when you're baptized, you are buried with Christ. He died, and so guess what happened to you? You also died. In the same way that he died and was buried, you have died and been buried with him. And because you've been buried with him now, you have had the circumcision of your flesh take place. In other words, the cutting away of your sinful nature. Here's the best way a pastor of mine that I had in college described this. It's the best way I've heard it described. Because we all recognize that even though we're saying Christ is taking our sinful nature, he has, he has stripped it from us. That's what this text is claiming, right? When it talks about this circumcision, we all recognize that we still have desires and things that lead us astray. Yes? We still have a flesh. So how does that how does that resonate with what we're reading here? When it says he's cut it away from us, he's taken it from us. So why do I still sin? Why do I still do anything that, like Paul talks about in Romans seven, like the things I don't want to do I do? We've felt that before, haven't we? Things I want to do I don't do. Like what is what is my deal? Is is kind of a very odd summation of Romans seven, right? what on earth is going on with me? I don't understand myself sometimes. And we've all been there. We've all done that. And a pastor of mine used to say it this way. He said, when you come to Christ, uh, he's like, it's like you were a car who has received a new engine. I mean, you have been given something new. And Paul returns this idea again and again. What we're finding here in Colossians is Paul's most common argument about how to walk in the ways of Christ. Right When he says, you need to know that you are not who you were. You have died That's the first part. You have died. And and if you can imagine this car, imagine the new engine has been dropped in and it is a beautiful engine and it, it, it purrs like a kitten. I mean, it is beautiful. It runs. It's powerful. It's strong. It never hiccups. But the old engine is still in the car. Somehow this car has room for two engines, right? And sometimes instead of connecting everything that we need to run the car to the new engine, we take it off the new engine and we connect it to the what? To the old engine. We connect to the flesh, to the old us, right? But that's no longer. So when it says we've, we've had this cut off of us, what he's saying is we've had all the connections taken off the old engine and we've had them placed on the new engine. That's who we truly are. That's what Paul's getting at here. Okay, so that's what the text is telling us. So the question now becomes, like, what claim is Jesus making there? What is the claim that he's making? Here's the claim that he's making. is I am able... I am able to take away your disordered desires. I am able to so fundamentally change you that I'm able to take away your disordered desires. When I bury you, when I circumcise you, right, what I do is I change, I take away those old desires that are misplaced and misshapen and Directed by sin and not directed by me. So how does that help us then reject false ideas? If that claim is true, how does that help us reject false ideas? Well, I would say it this way. My desire to believe something counter to the truth comes from my sinful nature, right? Why do I choose to to believe something other than what Christ has told me is true? The reason ultimately down deep is because I have a sinful nature that drives me towards believing something other than what is true because it means I will get to function autonomously, it, it feeds my pride, any number of things in my flesh cause me to want to move towards a belief system or a, a philosophy that isn't true. So now if Christ is claiming that he can cut out those things, that he can replace or he can, he can take away misshapen or disordered desires, then what is he claiming to be able to do? help us reject false ideas by taking away the desire to move towards them. You follow? Okay, so then let's ask the last question. In a secular worldview, what is the thought, what is the, the pattern of thinking about this very idea of misplaced desires, right? Or disordered desires. And the thinking generally is pretty simple on this in a secular worldview. It's that there's no such thing as disordered desires. Because truth is relative, and so whatever you desire, whatever you want, whatever you want to pursue, it's up to you. And so if, if it's up to you and truth is relative and there's not an objective truth that overarches for, and applies to everyone, if it's relative person to person or culture to culture, right? then there's nothing and no one that can tell you that the desire that you experience is disordered. So the key then in the secular worldview is simply to say, I need to recognize instead of where I might feel that my desires are inappropriate and I shouldn't feel them, Rather than just go, well, how do, I, how do I get rid of those things that I don't want to feel, those desires I don't want to have anymore, how do I get rid of them? The answer is, don't worry about getting rid of them, just believe that they're okay. Does that make sense? If you can embrace that reality, then essentially you'll be good, right? They don't need to be taken away from you. And now there are exceptions to that. Secularism is inconsistent in this because it will identify that there are certain desires, maybe like the desire to murder, Where it would say, yeah, that one's one's not okay, but there is no way in which secularism offers that that can be taken from you, right? So ultimately, nine times out of ten, the solution in secularism is just believe that those desires are okay, right? And my question to that is, is that sustainable, Is that, how do you sustain a relationship? Let's just take marriage, for example. How do you sustain a marriage if every time uh, you have a desire and your spouse doesn't like that desire and you say, well, you can't tell me that my desire is not good? How long will that marriage last? Right, because if everyone just argues always that my desire is my desire and you can't tell me that this doesn't work. I don't know how a, a friendship, how any relationship ever gets sustained, right? I also don't know how you handle competing truth claims in that environment. So if, if I claim this desire is good and you claim it's bad, how do we ever know who's right and who's wrong? If all we can ever say is your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, by the way, you've heard this a lot recently and you will continue to hear a lot, you will hear words put in front of the word truth like his truth, her truth, their truth, Okay? That's completely inappropriate. There is no such thing as his truth or my truth or your truth or her truth. There is only truth. And to put any additional word in front of it is completely logically false because you completely undercut the concept of truth by adding my truth, her truth, his truth, their truth. If you do that, you have no truth. You follow? Okay, so that's what secularism attempts to do, right? Now, Let's go to the next idea. We need to keep moving here for the sake of time, right? So the third thing, the third thing Jesus says he has done here is not only that he has buried us and therefore taken our sinful nature from us, he has raised us. That's the next part. Look at verse 12. And so he says, having, buried, having been buried with him in baptism, and then he says, in which you were also raised with him through faith, you see that, through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, Paul is saying, you didn't just, you didn't just die with Christ, you were raised with him. And you're, we're probably pretty familiar, if you've been around church for a little while, you're familiar with this concept. He died, so we died. He was raised, so we can be what? Raised, right? And he doesn't paint it just as a future reality that we will be raised someday. He treats it as a right now reality. He says, you are something new today. Now, you have been raised with him is the language we find there, past tense, right? So you have been raised. So what's the claim then being made there? If he's saying, not only did you die, you've been raised, and in the death part, the claim he's making is, I can take away your disordered desires, then what's the claim he's making now in the resurrection side of it? And I can give you new good desires. Do you see it? He doesn't just leave us empty. He doesn't just say, hey, I've stripped away the bad desires and just left nothing there. He says, I have stripped away the sinful nature, the desires that are disordered, and now I have come in and I can replace them with desires for the good and the beautiful and the true and the right. Isn't that good news? That he would say that, right? That he would say, oh, I can give you the new engine, right? I can give you the new set of desires. That's the claim that he's making. So how does that help us reject then false ideas, right? How does that help me reject when I encounter a philosophy in the world that is not according to Christ, as verse 8 said? How does that help me? Well, how it helps me is it causes me to be a person who delights in what is true and right and good. And when I delight in what is true and right and good, by nature I lose a taste for that which is not true and right and good. I'm not left an empty vessel to be filled up with whatever I may find on any street corner of philosophy I am someone who has been filled with the presence of Christ. I am someone who has been raised from the dead spiritually. And because that has taken place and I have a new set of desires within me, I can identify what is true and right and good. I have the ability to be discerning and to assess, right? So 2 Timothy 1.7, when it talks about this idea of the, of the new person that we are, the resurrection that we've received, says this. It says, We have been given a spirit, not of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have been given a spirit of power and love. And what else, church? Anybody know? Self-control. Power and love and self-control. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Paul's not telling Timothy everything that this new us is, but he's saying you have a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Well, just think about that. Power to discern truth from falsehood. That's the spirit that resides in you, right? Power to love those who are unlovely. Power to exercise self-control, to not run after false ideas because they seem really nice or they promise you something that you really want. This is the kind of transformation that he's claiming has taken place in us. So how does secularism speak to this? And this one's pretty simple. One, new desires aren't needed because the old desires weren't bad, right? That's the idea. New desires aren't needed because, the, because morality is relative and the old desires weren't actually bad. We just had to realize that they were kind of imposed upon us societally, and once we understand that that's the case, we can start to live our truth and feel okay about ourselves, right? But I would say where there is an acknowledgement that there might be a desire that is misplaced or we're just inconsistent in applying secularism, and so we say, well, that desire actually is bad, ignoring our moral relativism. Where we embrace that then, the answer is almost always education. How will you get new, better desires? Through education. If you'll just learn more. Learn more, learn more, learn more. Get more highly educated. If you'll do that, everything will be well and good. And I'm a proponent of education. I'm not anti-education. But education is not the answer to transforming your soul from within. It's just not. It doesn't work that way. Our beliefs are incredibly important. What we think, ideas have consequences. They have major consequences. Important ideas have important consequences. And so what we think matters very, very much. But the transformation of a heart and a mind does not take place through philosophies; it takes place through a personal encounter with God, is what Christianity teaches, right? Which is very different, right? It means you don't have to be a, you don't have to be Einstein to be someone who is transformed and who lives a life of truth and goodness and beauty, right? You can have diminished intellectual capacity, and you can be a godly man or woman. Deeply godly, which is really wonderful because it means the gospel is for everyone, right? Just not, not just for those with the, the brain power to understand really hard intellectual concepts and then be transformed. By the way, we live in the most educated era of human history. And are we are we showing signs of being really unified and enlightened? We seem more polarized than ever. Education is not the answer we've been told it is. Okay, fourth thing that Jesus says he can do here is that he has forgiven us. Look at verse 13 and 14. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what he's saying there is that all of humanity has, has an IOU. I mean, the, the Greek language there literally has this idea of an IOU, that humanity owes a debt to God, and that we all have signed the IOU, and we said, God, we owe you allegiance. We owe you obedience, and we have not given it. And so God has this record of debt against us, this IOU that, that he, we have said, we owe you. And just because you say you don't owe it doesn't mean you don't owe it. We all owe it. We have not paid it. And the beautiful image here is that he says, what God has done with that record of debt, that IOU, is he has taken it and he has nailed it to the cross of Jesus. And in nailing it to that cross, he has claimed that that IOU is now paid. It is completed. The debt that was owed has been wiped out. The debt that our sin has created has been wiped away by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what he's getting at when he says, it has been nailed to the cross. You have been forgiven. So what's the claim there? The claim is he can take your guilt away. Jesus is claiming to be able to take your guilt away. Well, how does that help me reject a false idea? How does that help me reject a false idea? Well, it helps me reject false ideas because it is usually my, my desire. We all have, an I believe, an innate desire to justify ourselves, to to prove that we're okay and that we're good. That, that's, you talk to anybody, that's why they work for a million dollars. It's why, I mean, I've heard wealthy, wealthy athletes give interviews and say, I was so afraid of losing because my way of, of justifying my existence was to win. I had to win, and so I would do anything to win. And you think, this guy makes millions of dollars, the world adores him he's really that insecure that he has to win to justify his existence He says, yes, I do. I must win. And we're all seeking to justify ourselves, to, to justify our existence and our mode of operating in the world. And because we are, right, that, is, that comes from a place of, of, of a deep sense of, of a lack of capacity, right? And so we seek to justify ourselves. But here's, here's the beauty. When Christ claims to be able to take our guilt away, he takes away our need to justify ourselves. And because we no longer have to justify ourselves, we no longer have to chase after false ideas or concepts or worldly philosophies or things in the world to be able to be justified. It's already taken place. And if you know you're justified, then you don't chase after those things. Do you follow me? Sorry, so just comparing secularism then again Common theme here, right? In secularism, forgiveness is a myth. It's no, it's not needed, right? Forgiveness is not something that is ever needed in secularism. And again, let's go back to the question we asked about relationally: How well does that? How practical is that in terms of how you would live in a relationship? If you never said I need to be forgiven and never asked for forgiveness, how long would that friendship last? Right. So, is sec- secularism is a is a. It's just an empty philosophy, if I could be so bold. It's just an empty philosophy. It doesn't offer us anything for the things that we actually need. We have these needs. We have a need to be justified, to have our guilt taken away. We have a need to have new desires placed in us. We have a need to have old desires taken out of us. And we have a need for God's fullness, satisfaction to enter into us. We, we have a need to be fulfilled. And at every turn, secularism fails to offer a good solution to any of those things. Now here's, before we come to the table of communion, here's what I want to kind of wrap up with. Right? At the end, he, 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 in verse 15, kind of starts, ends where he began. And he says, look, the, the elemental spirits of the world, he says, that are leading you into falsehood, Christ has taken them captive It's this beautiful image of a victorious warrior who's returning into, in the Roman world, they would return into Rome and they'd have all their slaves behind them they'd conquered in war, all the the conquered slaves that were now gonna come and be subject to Rome. And that's the image Paul is using. And he's saying, Christ has conquered all of these elemental spirits of the world, all these empty philosophies. He has conquered them and they are being led captive in his train. They sought to take you captive in verse eight. Don't be taken captive by them, he says. And then in verse 15, he says, Christ has taken them, what? Captive. The things that sought to enslave us, he has enslaved. He has been victorious over them. Now, I love that because here's what a lot of us probably have thought, right? What do I need to be able to discern what is true and what is false? That's the question we began with at the very beginning of this whole, you know, 40 minutes. That's the question we began with. And look at what the answer has been that Christ has given us. It's not, you need a lot of education. And it's not, you better know your Bible backwards and forwards. It's a good thing to do, by the way, right? And it's not, you better have some really good friends who are really wise, who are gonna help you, you know, discern truth and falsehood, that's good too. But what he has said ultimately that we need is what? It's the gospel. When you believe the gospel and rehearse the gospel and go back to it again and again, in Christ, I am satisfied. In Christ, I have had the old me taken away. In Christ, those old desires have been replaced with new desires. I'm a new person. I'm a new creation in him, in Christ, I am forgiven. My guilt is taken away. It's those truths rehearsed implanted in a heart and planted in a mind that guide us to see everything else and discern whether or not it is true in Christ or it is false. It's all you need.